The Rural Health Voice, Episode 46, Food Sovereignty. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Why don't we grow more of our own food? Amy Rose Full, founder of the Virginia Free Farm, joined me to discuss how they are assuring that Virginians have access to healthy food. So welcome, Amy Rose. Hi, thanks for having me. I really am thankful for the opportunity that uh, to edify your listeners about the problems surrounding food insecurity. Sure. And so looking at your website, you have yourself listed as food sovereignty advocate and founder. I know what a founder is. What's a food sovereignty advocate? So our, we are a nonprofit that centers around providing free food, but that's not all we do. We actually... Our measure of success is getting people independent from us. We not only provide people with free food in the interim, but we actually will provide livestock in the form of chickens, ducks, plants. We've grown thousands of plants to give away. We give away hundreds and hundreds of seed packets every year to anyone who needs them to grow. Um, And then in the meantime, we will provide them with free, fresh, high-quality, nutritious food. Because a lot of times when you go to a food bank, you are going to be given highly processed, hyperpalatable food, which at least it's food. I'm not saying that anyone or anything needs to be knocked for giving away those things. I don't want anything to go to waste. I don't want anyone to go hungry. But it's not in the best interest a lot of times of the people that are receiving those food or those food items to necessarily be given low quality Um, low nutrition food that will contribute to high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. What we really want to do is we want to get people food sovereign, get them growing their own food, get them consuming more high quality nutritious food with their future health in mind and making sure that they have the ability to do these things. We offer education, all of these free items, because our end goal is to get people independent and not need us. We This is actually the first year we have had success with that um, and had people, we call them for their pickups and they said, we don't, we have too much in our garden or we have too many eggs. We don't need you anymore. That's our success. So that's where the food sovereignty um, piece comes in for us. And I think it's really the most important thing So I saw that you could buy heirloom seeds through your website, but I didn't see anywhere I could buy food. Are you giving away all of the food you grow? We do. We give away thousands of pounds of food every year. Everything is completely free. You can buy hot sauce. It's just like a fundraiser. It's nothing serious, but we really don't sell any of the food that, um, that we produce. One of the things that we've talked about on this podcast before is the fact that many rural positions, rural jobs, rural employment don't have, you know, traditional employers such as agriculture that provides traditional benefits such as health insurance. And that's, you know, I think where a lot of the struggle comes from is, is the things that we tend to take for granted will be paid through our employer are not covered in those rural small cell phone businesses. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And another thing that I've noticed, um, we have we have some employers in the area that have obviously been affected by COVID. We've all been affected by COVID, but some of their employees are um, undocumented. They, a lot of them have families and children here. And so a large base of uh, the people that we serve are those undocumented workers because they not only do they not qualify for, say, unemployment or SNAP, anything like that, they also don't have health care. And during a pandemic, it's kind of important that we're all taken care of. Um, so I can't imagine not only is there the risk to physical health, but there's also the risk to mental health um, and stress from all of that, which is a huge problem. Yeah. So going back to the free farm, if I, if you're not selling your products, how are you funding the work? We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We do take donations online. We have a Patreon account where you, there's different levels of incentives from us. Um, we are all volunteer. We have a robust team of volunteer leaders, a really great board that I couldn't do any of this without, honestly. They keep me going. Um, and then we just have individual and um, some corporate sponsors. The RVA Agriculture, um, you can find out more information from rvaagriculture.org. So she has um, set it up so when you shop on her online farmer's market for pickup, you can, I want to say, I'm saying this in air quotes, purchase 10, 25, 50 pounds of our food. And that is all donated to Goochland Cares, um, which I believe is both the food pantry and the Meals on Wheels. So we will do, like we're doing this weekend, um, we're processing chickens this weekend. So we'll have about 100 chickens ready to go for next week. Um, and they are vacuum sealed whole here. Um, but th those dollars from the donors that purchase through her site um, actually support us being able to feed those chickens. They support a, a very small percentage ends up going to um, RVA agriculture, but that's great because she takes care of other farmers in the area. And then it also support, supports a third nonprofit, which is the Goochland Cares and their Meals on Wheels program. Um, so it's wonderful. It's a really great opportunity to, for people to be able to support three nonprofits in one foul swoop, and it keeps us going. Our chickens, we actually don't purchase. Um, so we have we have a bunch of amazing other farmers in the area. I want to say there are Rooster Roundup crew, and um, so they regularly will round up birds from like the Fredericksburg area, Mechanicsville, um, out in Cumberland County. Um, that area, pick up all the birds and bring all the unwanted roosters to us. And so then they are housed here for a short period of time until they can be processed for donation. So that's a huge help. Um, that actually came to us as an idea from a local organic inspector that happens to live down the road. And it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> so um, it's been a great source of um, meat for the community. Because we feed about 550 folks a month, um, and that number has been ever-growing. So what inspired you to start the free farm? 
the first thing that comes to mind is why not? I have the ability to, so I feel like it's something I have to do. I really honestly have no other answer for that question. Um, I do feel like because I'm a mother, it makes the world around us better by taking care of these people. Someone that's hungry is not going to perform well at work or in school if they're going to college, what have you. I want I want to leave the community better for my kids. And by that, I want all of the community to be better. Now you're talking about, you know, hungry kids not being able to learn. I see a bunch of pictures of cute kids on your website. What are you doing with them? Um, so we actually have uh, volunteers come every Saturday and Wednesday, and children are always welcome. There's tons of things for kids to do, and it's really great to be out in nature touching and learning and playing. And it teaches children to get their hands in the dirt. It's fascinating to watch how excited they get about learning and growing. One of the things that we do is offer um, children's classes um, and to anybody that that wants them. Some of those, um, the pictures that are on our website have to do with um, organizations that take care of at-risk youth. And it has been absolutely fascinating keeping in touch with some of those children's parents um, because all the kids get to go home with seeds. It's been great watching them on Facebook grow their gardens from the seeds that we produce and give away freely every year. And I really enjoy knowing that the kids will get excited about eating those vegetables and um, hopefully, not to be cliche, that plants the seed in them to want to grow further and keep doing it in their life. I think that's a great cliche for this. <laughs> well, that and like people that grow their own food are less likely to waste it. And we have a horrific food waste problem in the United States as well. Between 40 and 60% of all produce produced in the United States gets thrown away. That is staggering, especially when there are people that are hungry. Absolutely. Now, something else I saw on your website was a tribal garden project. What's that all about? Yeah, so we have partnered with both the Monacan Indian Nation and the Rappahannock Tribe, as well as the Richmond Indigenous Society. And um, part of this project is another, I know, keep bringing back that buzzword of food sovereignty. It is a food sovereignty initiative to get them growing traditional foods, both for themselves and possibly the community. I know that the Monacans are interested in supplying their own community food pantry with high quality, culturally appropriate food. Um, and really kind of reimagining what you consider food because so I'm Native American. My I am an enrolled member of the Sovereign Nation of Missisquoi, Sokoki Band. And while I am a transplant to Virginia, the Virginia Indian community has really embraced me as one of their own, and it's been amazing. But a lot of the Natives here have lost their language, their culture, and really their food culture. And it's it can be very empowering to a person to really try to reclaim those things and reconnect with um, their ancestors through that. That Food is a great way and gardening is a great way to, um, to teach language that has been lost before it is completely extinct. And I think that is 
so important. And that is, um, that is, has been installed in downtown Richmond, actually, in Northside. And it's a free community garden to all that want to come by. And I believe there is about 15 tribes that are represented by the Richmond Indigenous Society from all over North America and Central America. And it's just a really great resource for the diaspora that now are what we call city Indians um, to really get together, find family, find um, find like brother and sisterhood um, and support one another in that journey of reclaiming culture, reclaiming foods. Yeah, and that reminds me that a few years ago I was um, being interviewed on the radio and we were talking about you know, the health problems in rural communities. And I had made the comment that, you know, it's many, many rural people don't have access to good food. And that was part of what contributed to their health problems. And the radio host actually mocked me and said that if rural people don't have access to good food, it's because they're too lazy to grow it themselves, um, which, which really put me off. Uh, but why do you think that more rural people don't grow their own food? I think that unfortunately that is now the perception of a lot of people that live in the country. Um, and I, farming changed drastically for in the last hundred years. It's scaled bigger and bigger. And unfortunately those farms that grandma used to have the kitchen garden and what have you, that doesn't exist anymore. And it's a very tech heavy chemical heavy, um, Commercial ag, I, I think a lot of it has evolved to these subsidy crops that, I mean, if you're growing a thousand acres of corn and you don't have time to grow for yourself, you are, as a farmer, are just as reliant on the grocery store as everyone else. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from because agriculture has changed so much. And I feel like the subsidy program at its inception was great, but I think its persistence is, I, I know this is going to be an unpopular opinion, I'm not sure that its persistence is either necessary or prudent for how things are going. I mean, when you think about it, it has almost, it has distorted the Americans' view of what food should be, what food should cost. Um, we're used to going to the grocery store and getting, you know, cheap ground beef. You know, the uh, when I think of it, I think of those tubes of ground beef. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. From Walmart. So, like, the tubes of ground beef and all those many processed corn products, they're dirt cheap, yes, but I think that a lot of people don't realize that their taxes are actually paying for the part that you're not seeing retail in the grocery store. And they're generally not very healthy for you, these choices. And they are artificially low because the government is subsidizing all of these things and they need them to go. They need to be sold. Um, it doesn't make any sense when the price of corn is less than the cost of production and everyone else is paying for it. We're not just paying for it in our taxes, we're paying for it in our healthcare costs as well, because all of these unhealthy foods are really damaging us at their core. And I don't think rural people are too lazy. I think that a lot of, um, I think that a lot of this 
change in agriculture has brought this about, it's manifesting itself in ways like our life expectancy being lower for this generation than the previous, the first time, for the first time ever. I believe that's like the current stats because of our health problems. And with that, a term I hear being thrown around a lot when it comes to food security in rural areas is the concept of, quote, food deserts. What's your take on that term and what it means to our rural communities? Oh, man. I live in a place where it's pretty far. Like, we have to drive a significant um, distance to go to a grocery store with a lot of fresh produce. Thankfully, I don't have to do that because we do grow a lot of our food here. It definitely does happen in rural Virginia. One of the things that I have been tapped to do is the, so I'm working with the Department of Agriculture and the Virginia Department of Agriculture is actively trying to address this. um, And they're trying to do it in a really great way. The 2020 um, Virginia General Assembly has set aside $1.2 million to address not only the food deserts in Virginia, but also the the disparity, the economic disparity for the BIPOC community in Virginia. And so Virginia has mapped out the food desert areas and those are being prioritized. Um, And I'm talking about like the closest thing for me, if I wanted to go grocery shopping, I guess you could consider this a food desert. Um, There is a gas station a few miles down the road, but that's about it. And I have a great selection of malt liquors and um, chips and instant noodles and maybe some processed cheese. But I mean, you're not going to find fresh, low-fat dairy there. You're not going to find a single green item at all. They do have some uh, some French fries and uh, hamburgers and cheeseburgers, things like that. But there's literally nothing to sustain human life that is remotely considered healthy by a sane individual. And there's a ton of communities around here like that. And I think a lot of, I mean, the old gas stations that might still be functioning on back roads in Virginia, a lot of them, their food is the same. And I understand from a retail perspective that shelf-stable food is is a lower risk than having something on your shelf that's going to spoil. So I'm not knocking the retailers at all in any way, shape, or form. But I guess that's why our solution for the quote-unquote food sovereignty or solving this um, this problem of um, food deserts is to get people growing for themselves. Now, the Virginia Department of Agriculture has actually set aside um, this money to work with BIPOC retailers and farmers that they're trying to get the farmers that can sell directly to people, but also retailers that will source fresh food from uh, local farmers and sell in areas that are considered um, considered food deserts with an eye towards both bridging the wealth gap for Black, Hispanic, and indiv- in Indigenous uh, farmers and retailers, but also helping to bridge the health gap too that has been perpetuated from generation to generation because of the system that is set up or that has become. And unfortunately, things don't change very fast. It's like turning the Titanic because everyone's so afraid of change. And I understand that. I don't like change either. 
I don't think a lot of people normally like change, but I think we need to kind of not fear this sort of change because in the end, we see how how broken the system is. I really think that if we can institute these changes, then we can grow back to something better than what we were before that's better for everybody. Now, one of my first guests on the podcast was a minister who is working to encourage churches to grow food on the church property to assure that people have access to healthy food. Are there other initiatives like that that you're aware of? There are, and it's fantastic. We actually provide uh, seeds and plants to these people, and it warms my heart. It's so good. So uh, Gordonsville, I guess, could you consider Gordonsville rural? Close enough. tiny town. <laughs> Gordonsville is like a bustling metropolis compared to where I live. <laughs> so I'm really not sure whether my perception of, of rural is necessarily the most accurate uh, perception of rural. But so Gar- Gordonsville has, um, I believe the organization is called Feed My Sheep. They've come down to pick up seeds from us. And there's an organization called um, RVA Food Justice. I realize this is if Richmond is a metropolitan area, but one of their members um, has gotten Faith Community Baptist Church and I believe St. Stephen's to grow um, plants for community use, which is really awesome. I'm sure there's other ones out there. Those are just the few that we've picked up and partnered with this year and been able to provide hundreds of plants and seeds. And it's been so great watching them on social media as they grow and feed the community. So I say like we feed about 550 people every month. I have no idea how many other people we indirectly feed by getting all of those little fingers out into the community, installing gardens and providing seeds. Well, I know several community gardens at community health centers and free clinics around the state. Um, and there's some farmer's markets. I know the, the one I go to in Blacksburg plus some other ones, they accept food stamps um, at, at the farmer's market and will sometimes even, you know, double the, the amount of the food stamps. So if your food stamp is supposed to be worth $1, they'll make it worth $2 through some special initiatives they have, which I think is a fabulous way to, to make sure everyone has access. So as a former nurse, what do you see from that perspective as the connection between food sovereignty and health? Oh, man, where to start? I mean, well, all of the obvious things with um, having to do with, you know, the diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol that is really literally killing us. Um, So I have an interesting perspective, and it has to do more with... um, well, not necessarily just the desperate um, choices that are made by people that are food insecure. Sometimes they're bad choices because of, like I was t- touching on, the subsidized foods that maybe have a low retail pr- price point, but we pay for on the back end um, through taxes and subsidies, which is just insidious because it's literally killing us. But um, the mental health aspect, so I actually was a correctional facility nurse for some time. And then when I moved, I was working at a private school as a school nurse. And it was fascinating watching behavior patterns. And I know that food and mood are intimately connected, ADHD, um, 
all sorts of disorders are attributed to poor nutrition. And it was absolutely fascinating watching the same behavior patterns. There's a really great book called Food and Mood, and it's written by Elizabeth Sommer, who is a registered dietitian. I highly recommend reading that. Um, it will make all of the connections between behavior and um, food. Well, and, you know, thinking about what's going on in our nation right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic, which seems no signs of letting up anytime soon. And at the time we're recording this, we still don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be. So you see people stress eating a lot. Oh, man, I never really actually thought about that, but I'm sure you're probably right. And what are those things that we crave? Those hyper palatable, highly processed foods? High sugar, I mean, high fat. <laughs> yes. All the things that are cheap and readily available, shelf stable and everywhere. Absolutely. How did we get to that point? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Earl Butts. <laughs> exactly. So if healthcare providers listening to this episode want to encourage healthy eating with their patients, what do you think they could do? One of the first things that you would need to assess is their ability to access that food. Do they have transportation to get there? Do they have the means to... to pay for that food because we talk about snap and fresh fresh match but sometimes those farmers markets are inaccessible to these patients they don't have transportation to get there maybe they don't have the means because not all food insecure households even um, even qualify for snap a large percentage of the pay people that we help are in that 27% of all households that don't qualify for snap but are still working poor and do have food security issues. I mean, if you are faced with the choice of buying gas to get to work or a bus fare to get to work or a bus fare to get to the fam farmer's market and buy food, what are you going to do? You're going to choose that job every time because you need to keep a roof over your head. So you may not have transportation or access to those healthy food choices. And last question. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Transportation initiatives, um, I guess, go back to that. Or empowering those people to be able to grow their own food. Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. And I really believe that food is an essential part of our healthcare system, even though it's a totally different industry, it is so important. And I guess better informing and educating um, physicians and nurses about, especially nurses, because they're the front lines of healthcare. They spend more time with the patients, they get to know them better, they get to know them personally in many cases, much more than a, a physician that's overly busy um, and overly stressed has the ability to do so. Really, educating them on these issues so that they can more appropriately help their patients. Because, I mean, when I was a nurse, I didn't know anything about these statistics or some of these choices um, and obstacles that a lot of Americans are encumbered with. Um, there's a huge a huge gap in access to healthy food. We've almost got food apartheid in a lot of rural areas in our state. And 
It doesn't need to be that way. We just need to collectively come together and create new and innovative ways of solving these problems. And I really do have faith that we have the ability to do so. Virginians are so kind and Southern hospitality is such a big thing. I think it's possible. We just need to figure out how together we can do that because something that's co-created and community-driven is a lot more successful than just me off here, standing in the distance, shouting into the wind, trying to do my thing. Collaboration with other people, healthcare providers, those church food banks, um, community gardens. If we can all come together, I think we really can make a huge difference in our community for our health and for our community's health in the future. Thank you, Amy Rose. Thank you for having me. That's Amy Rose Fole advocating for improvements to transportation and other access points. Check out her links to RVA Agriculture and Richmond Food Justice in the show notes. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you check out the Virginia Rural Health Association on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This year's been unreal. Now school for kids is laptops in the living room. Coronavirus turned everything upside down, but we still have to remember important stuff like getting flu shots. Why is that? In uncertain times, getting a flu shot is something we can control. It's one less health worry for our family. You're right. I read the flu causes thousands of deaths and millions of doctor visits each year. All right, then. We're getting family flu shots, and we'll tell our friends they should, too. Flu shots are more important than ever this year. This ad sponsored by the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association.